Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Good to see everybody with us. Uh, Going to be talking about Palm Sunday this morning and, and kind of a different angle on it, but I, I do want to introduce, we're not, we're not going to camp uh, on the, the triumphal entry of the Palm Sunday passage, but I do want to read it and at least introduce it for you before we get into to what we're really going to be talking about this morning. But if you go to Matthew 21, we'll have it on the screens as well, but Matthew 21, starting in verse 11. And uh, Sam, I think I gave us... I think I put the slides up starting earlier than that, but I'm going to go verse 7 to start with. So Matthew 21, verse 7 says, They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So I remember when I was a kid, my dad's a pastor as well, and I remember one particular Easter season, he had been in Florida and ended up, uh, he had driven and, and brought a bunch of palm branches back with him from Florida for, for Palm Sunday. And I'm, I'm sure he explained it. it. He was always good about that kind of stuff. But as a kid, I didn't, I didn't really get it. I didn't get the significance of it. And so these palm branches were really like an Easter version of a Christmas tree for me, just kind of a prop for that particular holiday. But but Palm Sunday really is, it's a pretty significant moment in the life of Christ. It's, it's a turning point in his ministry, it's a turning point in his life because really up to that point, there were various situations where people had encounters with Christ, where he would heal them, where he would cast out demons, and, and they would have an opportunity to proclaim his name, to, to go out and tell people what had happened and, and, and who this Jesus was that they had come across. And pretty much every single time he would say, now, now I've healed you, you've had this experience, be sure not to tell anyone what it is that's happened. Be sure not to tell anyone who I am and what I've done for you. It's kind of, kind of a strange deal. And even when he would come across these people possessed by demons, the demons would know who he was and they would start shouting out who he was. We, we know who you are. You are Jesus. You're the one who was to come. And he would say, no, stop it. Don't speak. You don't get to tell people who I am. And, and we don't fully understand it at this point, but really he Jesus had a plan laid out for how this was supposed to go, how he was supposed to be revealed, how people were supposed to find out about him. And he wasn't going to let any person or any being disrupt that plan. And so he would tell people to be quiet. But, but this triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday experience, this was the first time where he said, all right, you recognize who I am. You have a belief in who I am. So go for it. Shout it out. I am the Messiah. Let people know. I am the chosen one who was to come. I am the, the Son of God. And so people were proclaiming that and, and waving the palm branches and spreading leaves on the road. And this this wasn't the first time that anything like this had happened before. This this waving of branches and the spreading of leaves. This Culturally, this had been for a long time a way to celebrate a king who was returning victorious from battle. It was it was a common thing, whether you're talking about Caesar or anybody else from that time period. It was a celebration of a king. Now, religiously for the Jewish people, they they had a couple different festivals that they would celebrate throughout a year. And, and, and in both of those festivals, they would wave branches. And it was a celebration of God here with us. God has made himself present among his people. It had happened throughout their history. 
And they had times when they would celebrate that, saying, God has come. He is here with us. Victory is won. God is king. And so these people are saying, I'm here. I am celebrating. I am honoring a king. And that king is not me. There's something bigger going on here than just what I see and what I can accomplish in my life. There's something bigger. And so this, there's something very significant about that kind of declaration. And there's a spot in the Old Testament where a similar occurrence happens. And it's in the story of Jonah. Now, you're asking me, okay, Justin, what does Jonah have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, absolutely nothing. <laughs> All right? Absolutely nothing. Now, we, we can tie in Jonah with Easter pretty well. But Jonah with Palm Sunday doesn't really correlate. But I, I'd love to look at Jonah this morning from a little bit of a different lens. Take a little bit of a different view of it. And, and you could go in a lot of different directions with the story of Jonah. You, you've probably, if you've been around church any amount of time, You've heard some sermon on Jonah. If you've heard multiple sermons, they've all come from different angles. But um, if you're not sure about this story, let, let me let me summarize the Jonah story for you. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet, and uh, God called Jonah and gave him a message that he wanted to take to a city called Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is not just any city. Nineveh was a city with a population about that of Ann Arbor, except a bigger land area. So a pretty significant city. But the thing about Nineveh, it was, it was the capital of an evil Assyrian empire. This is an empire that is known for torture. It is known for pursuing world domination. It was known for um, human sacrifice, even infant sacrifice. So this is not an empire that's messing around. And Nineveh is the capital of that empire. So God says, Jonah, I want you to go to that city and tell them, repent or else. That city's going to burn if they don't turn from their ways. And Jonah says, you want me to go to that city with that message? Bye. No way. He heads the opposite direction, finds a boat heading in the opposite direction, and as he's going, this boat comes across a storm. God sends up a storm that's that's threatening to sink this ship. And Jonah realizes that it's his fault. He says, "Guys, listen. This is from God, the one true God. It's my fault. I have disobeyed him. He is coming after me." And so you need to toss me overboard. That's the only way this is going to go away. So he convinces them. They throw it overboard. But instead of drowning, he gets swallowed by a giant fish. Okay, Picture Pinocchio and Geppetto getting swallowed by this whale. He's living in this fish. And for three days, he has an opportunity to think about his actions. All right, And if you can imagine swimming around, living in a fish for three days, you got some time to let your conscience go to work. So he has this experience. He realizes he was wrong. The fish throws him up on shore, and God comes to Jonah again and says, Listen, I still have the same message. I have the same city. I need you to do this. And Jonah goes ahead and does it. And, then, and he preaches the message in the city. The city hears it and repents, and God spares them. The crazy thing about the end of the story is that Jonah is ticked. He actually throws a tantrum because God saved this city. And God says, Dude, you're a joke. And the story wraps up from there. Now, looking at this story... I've kind of had a change in perspective over the years. And it's easy, you know, in, in talking about Jonah and reading through the story and people preaching on the story, it's common and, and easy to turn Jonah into the hero of this story. But Jonah is not the hero. He disobeyed on his first try. He went begrudgingly on his second try. And when even when he went on the second try, he wanted them to fail. At the same time, Jonah is both the best and the worst missionary of all time, right? 
But the worst part of this realization, this, the worst part of recognizing Jonah's failures is realizing that I act like Jonah. We act like Jonah. Not, not from the standpoint of wanting people to fail, not from the standpoint of wanting some city to be burned to the ground, but we act like we're the one in charge, like we have it all figured out. And, and over the course of our lives, no matter what we experience, even Jonah being swallowed by a fish, no matter what we experience, very little ever changes in us because we live cocky and arrogant, like I'm smart, this is my truth, and I want things in my timing, my agenda, I know best. The complete opposite of people on that first Palm Sunday, waving the branches, recognizing that there was something greater going on than just them. Our words and our actions scream arrogance, questioning God, questioning truth, questioning anything that doesn't suit our view of things. And Jonah is the guy who plays the hero, but is really just an arrogant coward. He's the guy we would destroy on Twitter, and we're just like him. We think we've got it all figured out, right? And the results of living our lives this way, we live life with an attitude, and we end up living life alone. Maybe not isolated, but alone and lonely. Maybe we even face some sort of destruction of our own in our lives. And no matter how hard we try, we end up dealing with the same ups and the same downs, the same frustrations, the same demons, the same weaknesses, experiencing no positive change no matter what we experience in our lives. And even over the course of months and years and maybe even decades, we look back and think, really? The same stuff? The same garbage in our lives? So we're not the hero. Jonah's not the hero. Who, who's the hero of this story? Who's the hero of this story? I'm, I want to go to Jonah real quick. Uh, we'll throw it up on the screens as well, but Jonah chapter 3, um, and we start to see who I believe is the hero of this story from the human side. Jonah 3.3. 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I, can, I almost feel like he was probably like, 40 more days, you guys are going to get it. <laughs> Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, this situation here where the, the message was received from the highest to the lowest. Everybody heard it. Everybody responded to it. And the sackcloth, everybody put on sackcloth. You've got, um, you've got squares on your seats. This is burlap. is the closest we could get. But sackcloth is basically very rough goat skin. And it was used often um, as a sign of mourning. They would actually put it on as clothes, as undergarments. Um, and it was a sign that their mourning was legit. So if somebody, uh, if somebody they loved passed away, oftentimes they would wear sackcloth to, to enhance the mourning process. And, and basically it was a chance to to take uh, the inward spiritual pain, the spiritual tension, and reflect it on the outside. Um, and, and it mentions fasting. Fasting, if you don't know, is, is basically uh, withholding, things, withholding something from yourself. Oftentimes food. Uh, if you grew up in a tradition that did Lent, you would choose something to hold back from yourself for a period of time, whether it's food uh, or chocolate or Facebook or whatever, something that you're going to give up for a period of time so that the the outside physical tension, physical pain, 
could enhance the spiritual process, the physical, the spiritual tension, the spiritual pain. And so for them to put on sackcloth, there's even, there's even parts in Scripture where it talks about girding your loins with sackcloth. Now, I love Jesus a whole lot. But I feel this burlap, I ain't wearing no burlap boxers, okay? It's not going to happen for me. But their basic idea was, we need a spiritual change. Something big has to happen in here. And in order to experience that, in order to enhance that, in order to prove that our inward humility is real, we're going to force ourselves to experience some physical discomfort and some physical change, something happening on the outside to reflect what's happening on the inside. And that happens throughout this city. A constant reminder of a spiritual issue. And the biggest, the biggest thing in this, uh, we'll go to uh, verse 6. continues on. Turning point in the whole story. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. That's the fast. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is a major turning point in the story. This is where it all changes. This is the moment of salvation for the king, for the city, where the king of the city who has all the given power, all the titles, all the influence, all the, all the, he can make the choices, he can do whatever he wants, and yet this guy hears the message and he's cut to the heart and he realizes, oh my gosh, everything we've been doing, everything I've been leading, everything we've been trying to do has been wrong. And he has this moment of clarity, this moment of humility and says, guys, look at, I'm in sackcloth too. I'm sitting in the dust. I'm off my throne. The crown is gone. You guys, in this moment, I am not the king. It's not about me. That's a major declaration. That's a major turning point in this story. And I imagine that this guy, as a leader of a city, that there was probably some type of conversation, some type of processing going on before this even happened, before Jonah even showed up, where he, he must have known something was off, right? He's in charge. He knows his city. He knows what's going on. For Jonah to show up and this, this half-hearted message to be received and to transform this entire city, he, he's probably trying to help this city turn a corner, probably trying to inspire some type of growth or progress or healing, trying to change things for the better with no success because they're just continuing this downward spiral. All they know are their false gods. All they know is their way of doing things. All they know is this advancement of the Assyrian Empire, and they're just going to keep doing what they're doing, but it keeps getting results. And I have a feeling that this guy, maybe this city, felt like, man, this, there's got to be something better than this, right? So when a guy like Jonah shows up and deliver this, delivers this message, I think this king started to realize, just like the people on Palm Sunday realized, that I think there's something bigger going on here than just me. And so what this king discovered and what we need to discover is that the change that we're looking for, the transformation that we've longed to experience, the junk that we have prayed to have delivered from our lives, the forgiveness we've been searching for, 
that change begins with the declaration, I am not the king. That humble, genuine, transforming change of mind, change of heart, I'm not the king. That's how it all begins. And now it's a different time period, it's a different context. But this same scenario plays out for you and me over and over again. When you're faced with a choice between God's way and your way, who is the king? When your intellect and your arrogance are in conflict with the truth, who is the king? When you have to decide between feeling good and doing good, who's the king? When you've screwed up and you can either be stubborn or initiate a change, who's the king? And when a just, righteous, forgiving, loving, sacrificial alternative for king is presented to you, Maybe humbly riding in on a donkey or maybe being talked about 2,000 years later in a sermon. Maybe he's fulfilling every need, offering himself to you as a free gift where maybe some around you are waving palm branches or you walk into a room where people are singing worship songs and some around you are maybe hesitant and watching with skepticism when all that lays out before you. Who's the king? How do you answer that? More importantly, how do you change the answer couple things question i want to ask you when you're the king what does your kingdom look like when you're the king what does your kingdom look like now i can't answer that for you some of you i know really well some of you i'm looking at for the first time just now but when you're the king what does your kingdom look like i don't know but i can probably guess I'm going to guess that at best, when you are the king, you're pretty limited in what you can accomplish. There's a glass ceiling because everything you're doing is in human strength only. So at best, you're facing a limitation on what you can experience and what you can accomplish in this life. At worst, when you're the king, there's destruction, things are falling apart, there's heartache, there's broken relationships, there's repeated mistakes that continue year after year after year, and maybe for some of you, generation after generation after generation. Because here's the biggest issue. Even when you're the king, even when you think you're on the throne, even when you think it's about you, you're never the rightful king. And what happens when there's opposing kings? What happens when there's, when there's two, king, two kings trying to fight for authority in that kingdom? You can go through biblical history, you can go through world history, you can talk about when, when uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, King Saul, and David comes up, and Saul, all of a sudden you've got Saul who is king, and David who's been anointed the new king, there is tension, there is conflict, there is warfare. How about when David's king, and one of his sons raises up, and his son thinks he should be king? Conflict, warfare, issues. Go world history. I don't know if you've seen the movie 300. King Xerxes is coming in, is trying to take over the world, and you got Leonidas. This is Sparta, all right? What happens when a new king wants to come in and be king? Conflict, warfare, things are not pretty. Even when you're on the throne, even when you want to be king, you're not the rightful king. And so what happens? Conflict, destruction, 
warfare, family, friends, work, all the things you love left in your wake because you think you're the king and the rightful king disagrees. What does your kingdom look like when you're the king? What about when Jesus is king? What does the kingdom look like when Jesus was king? A couple things. When Jesus is king, everything else pales in comparison to him. Everything else pales in comparison. Look, look at Nineveh. They, they had this moment where they realized, oh my gosh, it's not us. It's, it, this king is like, it's not me. And, and what happens? All of a sudden, eating doesn't seem so important anymore. All of a sudden, the daily work grind doesn't seem so important. All of a sudden, everything they had prioritized doesn't seem so important. All of a sudden, advancement in their vanity. And for us, all of a sudden, when Jesus is king, I'm telling you guys, I've experienced it. I know some of you have experienced this where you've truly given your lives to Christ. And all of a sudden, the toys don't mean as much as they used to. The promotion doesn't mean as much as it used to. That raise, making sure your kid is the best athlete, making sure you get that new kitchen floor, all of those things are just fine, but you start to realize, you know what, that's not what this is all about. Everything else pales in comparison. It's not the point anymore. We get a new perspective and a new purpose in life when Jesus is king. And when Jesus is king, all is forgiven. Jonah 4.2 kind of wraps up. This gets to the part where Jonah just gets shown to be such a huge turd. (laughs) Jonah 4.2, he prayed to the Lord. That's Jonah. Um, And he's angry at this point. He said, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God. Like it's this horrible thing, right? slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, this is pathetic on Jonah's part, like complaining, I just, I knew you were going to forgive him. That's why I didn't want to go. I knew you were going to forgive him. It's pathetic. This is a God who loves to forgive. Loves to forgive. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 103 Uh, verses 8 to 12. This is one of my favorite passages in the Psalms. Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God loves to forgive. So the things that we walk into church with, the things that we go to work with, the things that we go home with, the things that we go through life with, things that we've elevated above God, made the king. We've made ourselves king. All the things in our lives that have messed everything up, God loves to forgive that stuff. That's what he's about. And when Jesus is king, when we've experienced that forgiveness, when we've elevated him to his rightful place on the throne, everything changes. 
everything changes. Transformation, the refreshment we've been looking for, the clarity we've been looking for, it all starts with that declaration, I am not the king. And so what needs to happen differently? What needs to change? We need to ask those questions. We need to think about what's the... What's the physical discomfort, the the physical changes we need to make to reflect a desire for a spiritual change? Because if you look at the king of of Nineveh, their biggest thing, it was, was, all right, we're going to stop everything and course correct. Nothing else matters until we get this right. What are some drastic moves that we need to make? It's going to be hard. It's painful to experience change. It's it's painful to give ourselves over to the transformation that God wants to bring because he wants to clean things up. He He wants to help transform you. And yet we have to get to that point where we can make the declaration, I'm not the king. Do me a favor, if you'd if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes and if you're, if you're in church for the first time ever, there's nothing mystical about having your eyes closed, but it just gives us a chance to focus on God for a moment and, and give Him this moment. Here on this Palm Sunday, where so many years ago, the people of that city waved their branches in a major declaration. And hundreds of years before that, the people of Nineveh, realizing all the way up to the king, that there was something bigger going on. And in order to experience the change that they had been longing for, they had to make that declaration. And so if you're here today, you've never experienced the transforming relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to simply do this. In the quietness of your heart, just look up to God and say, God, I am not the king. I've tried to be the king. I want Jesus on my throne. Forgive me. Change me. Help me to live for you. We're going to be moving into a time of communion. So whether you whether that was something that you have prayed and expressed for the first time this morning, or if you're sitting there and you've been a Christ follower since you were four or five years old, we have an opportunity this morning to just reflect on what that relationship means to us. This week represents the week when Jesus went to the cross, and we have a chance to celebrate that as a tremendous victory for him, for us, for all those throughout the millennia who have given their hearts to him, but also to reflect on where we're at. Because many times, even if we have expressed and truly believe in our hearts that Jesus is king and he's number one in our lives, a lot of times we start to edge back over onto that throne sometimes. So wherever you're at this morning, I'd love for you to use this opportunity. Miriam's going to sing a song for us. Just a chance to really consider our hearts, consider our lives, consider where we're at. The ushers are going to come forward at this time and pass around the elements. We'll do the bread and the juice together in a moment after the song. But just take these few minutes as individuals, as families, process, what does it mean in your life to say, I'm not the king? 